Welcome back to the Open Source Startup Podcast. This is Tim from SNBC and our lovely co-host, Robbie from Cowboy Ventures. And we'd love to introduce, and we're super excited to have Linda, the CEO of Common Room on. And Common Room is the growth platform for PLG and commercial open source companies. So welcome, Linda. Hi, Tim. Hi, Robbie. Thanks for having me. We are thrilled to have you on. And this is, I'd say, one of my favorite introductions to a podcast guest because I first heard about Common Room from my open source companies that are loving using the platform. But I think where it would be a good place to start is why don't we go all the way back to the beginning. Where did the idea for Common Room come from? Yeah. So... In 2016, I was actually a junior investor at an early stage VC fund here in Seattle called Madrona Venture Group. And I think one of the best things about the opportunity to be a venture investor, as you both know, is that you get to dive deep into these industries and business models that are sort of fundamentally reinventing the way that software is being built and distributed and adopted. You're kind of on the forefront of all the cutting edge trends. And while I was an investor, I was really kind of impressed and got to see firsthand this like rise of the user-led or developer-led adoption motion within these new sets of software companies that were exploding, right? Everyone building an infra, commercial open source companies, you know, incredible stories like those of Figma or Asana or Notion. And so these early impressions that there was this seismic shift happening in kind of that modern customer journey, right? Starting to shift more towards like users adopting your software, talking about your products and your brands on social media, this entire kind of evolution around enterprise software was further validated by my next experience um, leading product marketing for serverless computing at AWS. And so at AWS, this was like 2017, 2018, like the height of the DevOps movement and the modern apps movement, serverless and containers. And so at AWS, we found that a lot of our most innovative services, especially on kind of the developer tooling side, like containers and serverless, they were experiencing game busters growth and not through this traditional enterprise sales-led model, but rather through enabling developers to get hands-on with a free trial of the service, helping them feel supported in the channels where they already wanted to engage and ask questions building scaling champion programs that spread, you know, education and enablement to more developers. That was really the sort of strategy that was powering our growth. And importantly, we were starting to engage with developers. And this is AWS. So it's happening at like massive scale, right? In these new channels that like, I think traditionally weren't really seen as customer engagement channels. So Slack, we built a Slack it ballooned to like 60,000 developers in just a short couple of months. Insane fire hose of questions being asked, right? People trying to adopt these products. We're getting questions on platforms like X, which was formerly Twitter, Stack Overflow, Reddit, GitHub. And we called it building community. It had kind of this grassroots vibe, but at its core, it was really a go-to-market strategy that was about building a passionate user base to power our growth and adoption. It was very, very different than kind of, again, that top-down sales-led model. And all the while that we were doing this, it was like impossible to get visibility into like these new channels, right? Like who are these developers? Are they customers? Are they prospects? 
We have people starring your GitHub repos. We have people submitting issues and PRs. Who are they, right? Like where do they work? What, what kind of developer are they? And so I would have these questions and then go into something like our CRM or even go into our central you know, BI team and say, hey, like I want to understand who these people are. I want to understand how that maps to surges and product usage. These are really critical signals for me to understand my customer journey and my business. But I had literally zero visibility, right? You're grappling with BI teams that you have to get on a roadmap for. They're pulling data for you, but not insights. I'd go into our CRM and it would have, you know, account-based information, but nothing around our kind of funnel, right? Like who's searching in product usage? Not possible to figure out in our CRM. And so... I realized that there was this problem that I really wanted to go solve, which I found so interesting. And it kind of came from this AWS background, which is like, can we apply, you know, almost like engineering concepts like visibility or observability or real-time intelligence or traceability to like customer data and customer insights instead of app data? Because that has been such a successful game changer for engineering and product teams. Why is it that customer-facing teams are still essentially living in the stone ages when it comes to like some of the most critical insights you could ever have as a business, right? Which is insights into your customers. So that was really kind of the initial impetus and the problem area that I wanted to go solve for. Yeah, it's really amazing. And also get to meet you a little bit at the early days was pretty amazing to hear a story too. I think I want to dive into maybe your founding story, maybe a little bit more maybe after you post your seed round, one thing I definitely remember and noticed is the sort of focus on developers because I remember your background at Amazon, right? You work with developers and and looking at all the early posts of Common Room is definitely more around developer communities, building trust and building that sector. Now looking at your products is user-led, right? As PLG is, is more broader. And so maybe talk about the choice of choosing developers and even potentially open source developers as your initial target audience. What is the thought process behind it? Is there anything particular that you have to do well there that's just unique about those kind of audiences versus just normal users? You know, I think investors talk a lot about this concept of like founder problem fit. And so for me, I understood that world intuitively and experientially. And so in part, it wasn't necessarily a choice. (laughs) And I think that's like a good thing, right? You really should go solve problems that you feel like you have an advantage and understanding. And like, I think we knew that the innovation that had not happened yet, that was completely net new to anything that existed in the world was this concept of visibility and data into social engagement, right? So if you're a commercial open source company, you probably engage with developers in the watering holes where developers already like to engage. And that's, you know, social platforms, that's GitHub repos, that's Slacks and Discords, it's forums. Developers don't like to talk to salespeople until they're very, very deep into an evaluation cycle to the point where, you know, in 80% of cases, a technical team gets on the phone with sales because they've already made their decision. And so as a business team at a company that sells to developers, you really have to figure out where to meet developers where they like to engage. And so we wanted to go and sort of shine a light into these new channels in a way that was actionable. Every question in a company's community Slack 
right? Every like or comment on a post on LinkedIn, every follow on Twitter, every product appreciation happening, you know, on Reddit, every star in your GitHub repo, every PR, every issue. We believed that these were critical signals of identity and intent. I mean, that like conceptually makes a lot of sense, right? You think about how many commercial open source companies where their GitHub repo and the engagement in that repo is like the foundation of their business. And so we knew that the team that was responsible for administering and engaging and supporting these channels were community and DevRel teams. And this is a specific team that's historically been very underserved by existing solutions. In fact, they had none at all, right? They were grappling with manual spreadsheets. They were suffering from a problem of they were unable to prove out the ROI of their programs to the rest of the organization. You could have a DevRel team that every single day is answering, you know, issues that are being submitted into the GitHub repos. And at the end of the day, you're like, well, like, what was the ROI of all of that? And so we spent two and a half years kind of understanding and building software that helped community and DevRel teams really gain that visibility and actionability into all of these highly fragmented digital channels. And at the end of this build, we realized that one of the most innovative and valuable things from a technology perspective that we had built was this concept of a unified identity of a person. So like we could tell a company, right, a DevRel community team, hey, we're seeing this product manager at Nike asking questions in your Slack about something. We're also seeing a VP of product at Nike start to like your, you know, posts on LinkedIn. Wow, we can aggregate all of that person level information. Going back to that concept of like visibility and traceability, right? We're turning this like constant fire hose of digital engagement into this view that companies care about, which is who is it? Where do they work? And we could suddenly tell a company, hey, like this is your developer community. These are the people, these are the accounts that are aware of you right now based on their inbound interest in your brand or your product by all of these various signals. And what happened once we built that is it was just a view that no company had ever had before. I mean, you imagine a commercial open source company has raised a large venture around based on their developer community or their GitHub repo and the popularity of their open source project. Before Common Room came along, They didn't know who had even starred that GitHub repo, right? Who's in there? And all of a sudden, we shined a light on that. And what ended up happening is, as we continue to build this, the demand gen and the sales folks in the companies where we had been adopted by DevRel started to come inbound. And they started to say, hey, this is like pipeline. This is intent. Like we want to convert these customers. Like these are critical signals for the way in which we need to be bringing our prospects through our customer journey. And so we started evolving to become more of this workbench for, you know, not only DevRel community teams, but demand gen and sales teams. And the layering of, you know, more and more user signals, including popular growing ones like product usage intent and product usage signals, as well as even traditional ones like who's visiting our website, right? Who's downloading our white paper? Companies started wanting us to bring in more and more of that into almost this customer 360. And so that's really been our evolution. It's like focusing on, you know, a problem that hadn't been solved before, coming up with something that looked like nothing that existed, 
really building champions with our key initial persona and then kind of landing and expanding our use cases and our value across uh, more of the go-to-market organization. Yeah, and I've heard from our companies that are users of Common Room that before Common Room, they felt like they were flying blind. So like the level of insight and just like the intent signals that they get, I think are super, super unique. I'm curious early on, so there's been this notion historically that for an open source community, if you're a commercial open source company that's working with it, you shouldn't be scraping or pulling data from the community. And I think over time, the feeling towards that has changed a bit. But I imagine early on with Common Room, there was probably some market education that you had to do because I imagine for any commercial open source company you work with, one of their biggest fears is, oh no, am I going to piss off the community? They'll feel like you're trying to monetize me and pulling all these data pieces and signals. So how did you help folks get over that hump? Every single business is really different. And this is one of the nuances. So we have customers that are commercial open source companies who do not have a free trial, right? It's you're either rolling your own stack on the open source side or you're buying the enterprise product. There's no cloud product. There's no free trial. And for those companies, it's really about being able to better identify moments when a key developer is looking for help. And like the value that you can provide them is really exclusive to that enterprise tier. And so like for commercial open source companies, the question that I always urge them to ask themselves is like, one, who is our ICP? Are they the same people as the ones that are starting to use our open source side? Because a lot of times it's actually very different. (laughs) The developers that will start using the open source software is very different than the persona that your sales team can sell to. And so deeply understanding that and like, what is that relationship? And then two, like, what is the value of your cloud product or what is ultimately the value of your enterprise product? Can you use all of that plus the intent and the context to really deliver a more personalized and timely experience? So one of our customers, as an example, they saw that conversion to getting someone on the phone increased by 40%. By doing a couple things. One, setting alerts when somebody asked a question or submitted an issue into their Slack or GitHub repo that was really aligned with the value that they knew their enterprise product could provide. And then two, setting up real-time alerts so that when that question was asked, they're actually going and responding in those channels, right? Instead of sending some cold outbound sequence to that person, going into Slack or going into GitHub and saying, hey, like, We'd love to help you with this problem. Would you like to jump on a call with our solutions engineer and like your account rep? And in these moments, we found that people are looking for help, right? They want a personalized experience and they want to feel like they're being heard. And so it kind of comes down to like, not to be pithy, but like customer obsession, right? If you're going and blasting everybody who stars your GitHub repo, that's just not going to work. But if you're like understanding your customer and leveraging the data to create processes that kind of bring them through that customer journey in a way where they feel like it's personalized and they're being heard, that's going to work great. And at the end of the day, we always say like, if you're working for a venture-backed commercial open source company, like there shouldn't really be a debate about the ultimate goal at the company level, which ultimately should be like to build an incredible product that people want to pay for, right? And so I'm curious, like, since you work with so many open source companies, what is sort of the right time to adopt Common Room? 
you know, because a lot of people, when you started off, your community might be small, you might be sort of uncertain the actual adoption might be coming from, but there's going to be some critical massive growth. There probably will be some tipping points, like a should I hire DevRel or how many should I hire? Should I hire a community manager? And the tools usually comes with that consideration. So I'm just curious, based on all the interactions and customers, is there like a sweet spot you usually tell people, okay, this is the time you should start adopting us. And what do you also expect the before after effect of using Common Room will be? Is there like a measurable thing or there's some other things that you help people guide them through? Yeah, it kind of depends on the size of your community, right? To your point, there's going to be some early companies that, you know, they'll hook up their GitHub repo, their Slack community, they'll hook up their Twitter, and it could be less than 2,000 accounts, right? And we consider that to be kind of on the earlier side of things from just a volume perspective. What's really interesting, though, is we do offer something called ecosystem listening. And what's so exciting about commercial open source companies is that they all exist within an ecosystem, right? How many uh, companies are built on Kubernetes, for example, how many companies are, you know, built on things like frameworks, right, popular frameworks. And so for a lot of our earlier companies, what we help them do is actually bootstrap and build that early community by plugging into other communities that are relevant to them. So we actually have a customer who, you know, has listening across over like 100 Reddit subreddits across topics that they care about. They're hooking up GitHub repos of projects that aren't theirs, but are really critical to what they're doing and part of their ecosystem. Or they're building a product that is only enabled by, you know, certain frameworks. And for them, that's an incredible wealth of information as well. If you're a company that, you know, gets kind of in that 2000 accounts plus range, that's when we really see the sort of appropriateness of the go-to-market use case, which is really more around pipe gen, pipeline generation, and like deal conversion. And I'm curious about in the early days of Common Room, there were a few companies that were really around open source community management that came out around the same time, like Orbit and others. And it seems like, at least from the way I've seen this space play out, Common Room seems to be the one that's most focused on go-to-market metrics and really focused on that like commercial piece. And I'm just curious, it sounded like from earlier, it kind of naturally happened based on the signals that you were gathering and you were selling to DevRel and then DemandGen and other go-to-market teams became more interested when they saw the data. But was that... Because it feels like Common Room is the one that's been able to make that switch to be more commercial focused more than others. Like how much of that was intentional or did we have unique data signals that we were pulling into our unified customer persona? Like how were you able to crack that? Because it just seems to be, you timed it so well within the downturn <laughs> being so focused on making money earlier. But it does seem to be like when folks think about who to adopt, they're like, oh, Common Room is the one that will really help me commercialize the most. Yeah, I credit that to the perspective that I gained at AWS. AWS, Amazon in general, is a... It's not an organization that funds things without a clear ROI, right? There's a level of rigor around, okay, like every single thing that we invest in, like what does that mean for our business? And even when we open source certain projects at AWS, there were very clear like business strategies and business goals tied to that open sourcing of that project. And so I think that I always had a perspective, again, like going back to this concept of like, at the end of the day, like we're here to build products that 
bring incredible value for our customers. And a part of that value is, are they going to pay for it? Right. And so I think we always thought of, you know, this entire kind of shift in how software is being found and evaluated and adopted as part of a customer journey with them purchasing at the end of that journey, right? So for us, the goal was always around like, how can we help transform the way organizations engage with their customers to be more customer obsessed, more modern, more personalized, but also like to Tim's point about outcomes, like we want SDR and AE and DevRel and sales engineering teams to be closing deals they wouldn't have closed, to close them faster than they ever could have closed them. And for us, ultimately, when we hear that from our customers, when they tell us, you know, how many meetings they're booking or how we're unlocking millions of dollars of pipeline for them in a year where they didn't think they could achieve that, that's what we celebrate over. Yeah, that's awesome. So I want to dive into maybe some of your content and community side. So you have a big playbook section, talk about very different kinds of playbooks around still developer related, but maybe beyond that too. And you mentioned you have like a large Slack community, right? And also like a newsletters. So you're building your own sort of funnel and community on your own as well. I wonder how do you see that as an important part of your products and company process? Do you treat this as a way to build a common room brand for people to just get to know the product? Or there's actually a product here that's part of the common room product. Yeah. yeah. The software, (laughs) the community is actually part of the product somehow because it feels like that, but I'm not entirely sure how to connect the dots here. Yeah. We built a community before we ever like wrote a single line of code. And so the community has been critical for us from the design partner, like early product market fit, early build phase, all the way to now. And I'll share a couple of like tactical examples. So when we were doing our design partner program, you know, we needed a place to kind of put everyone who had expressed interest in what we were doing. We were very early. We were showing them Figma box at that point. And it was a great way to kind of bring together a group of people that suddenly were like, oh, like. I have the same problem as this person and that person. And, you know, it's that feeling of being supported and heard and connected. It's an incredible way to get feedback from folks in a real-time manner, right? Put them all in a Slack. That was kind of the early genesis of our community. But now as it's gotten bigger, um, to your point, Timothy, like we're always thinking about how can we be more than just a software product, right? How can community be a fundamental service that we provide or even a product? So a couple of things we have done that I do recommend others think about. The first is we put our scale support into our community Slack. So that means that it's a combination of both, you know, people who are aware of us and interested, people who are just interested in joining the community for education purposes. And then, of course, like prospects. But we also have existing customers in there. And I think that's a great mix because, you know, you're learning from each other. You're seeing the questions that are coming through. You're seeing the answers. So I don't think, you know, conventionally people put scaled support into community. I think it's been a great tactic for us. The second piece of it is, and it ties into this whole like modern customer journey thing. So one of the features on our user-led growth platform is alerting when somebody has changed jobs. This is really critical for modern software companies because A, their users are so important to them and their users have learned the product. 
right? And B, people on average change jobs more than ever before. I was even talking to the CMO of Stripe and he you know, said that he was at a customer dinner. He sat next to someone at a large enterprise and he said, hey, like how did Stripe get into this enterprise? And the leader there said, oh, it was a developer who had used Stripe at his last job, right? We anecdotally know all this, but to see it in data becomes incredibly powerful. And so we have a channel in our community that's all about job postings, right? People are sourcing jobs, open recs for DevRel and community leaders and demand gen leaders and SDR leaders. And we actually use that channel as a critical way for our business to say, hey, so-and-so company is hiring for a DevRel leader. It might be a great time for them to finally kind of take action on all that developer engagement data. Let's make sure that, you know, that logo is now part of our target account list. So there's a lot of interesting tactics and incredible business outcomes that you can derive on efficiency, on intent, on understanding, you know, what's going on in your ecosystem that you can only gain from building a community of people that you can engage with every day. Yeah, I can imagine that's such a valuable signal for folks that are like proponents of the platform, but you don't have to wait until you happen upon, oh, they got this new role. You can actually have it in a data-driven way. I want to talk about like breakout moments for the company when you really thought things were working. Like maybe it was signing a big customer or maybe it was when you started to see this transition from DevRel budget over to go to market budget. Like what are some of those like crucible moments that you think of, of like, okay, things are really, really working I think that's always important and helpful for founders to know, like, what are those moments for later stage companies that they can kind of pattern match for themselves? There's three distinct moments that stand out. So the first was when community and DevRel teams, who, again, had no tooling or, you know, no tool like this, they started to fight for budget that didn't exist yet to purchase common room, to grow engagement in digital channels. So that was like the first moment we were like, oh, not only will our champions like adopt this, but they're going to like pound the table to like create a new budget line item for us <laughs> and like go to their marketing leadership or whatever it is to like really like pound the table for this tool. I think that's when we knew that we had built something valuable for, again, like a really critical role that had just been so underserved by technology. The second moment was when demand gen and sales leaders and CEOs started getting a hold of the data that was in common room and realizing they wanted to like leverage it for pipe gen and intent. I remember, and this was not very long ago. This was probably at the beginning of this year. I remember one day like waking up on a Saturday and Guillermo, the CEO of Vercel, had Twitter DM me and he's like, I love common room. And Raj, the CEO of Grafana, had emailed me and he's like, this is like way better than my view in Salesforce. And I think that was like a watershed moment because we had never gotten the attention of a CEO before. And like through no contact of us, they had seen it and they saw what we saw. So that was like huge validation. And then I think the third moment that actually happened maybe a month ago is like, customers asking us to layer in product usage signals, to layer in signals they already had, like website visits or pricing views, to construct a real-time 360 of all accounts, workspaces, and users, and like wanting to onboard their entire SDR and AE team, right? That's such a critical moment for us because we realize that for our target audience, for our target 
customers, we could and we had an opportunity to now be a top three tool in their sales and marketing tool stack. And, you know, there's no more important time than now to be able to be a top three tool for someone, right? To know that you're solving a critical problem for their entire company. So we really try to glom onto those moments. And I think one learning I've had consistently is for us, it hasn't been like one single breakout moment. It's been this constant practice of finding value, right? And then things change, the market conditions change, like job functions shift. And all of a sudden you're like, okay, we kind of have to regroup and reorient and evolve in this new direction. I think I read a blog by the previous president of HubSpot. And, you know, in it, he mentions like, it's titled like, my learnings of building HubSpot over 20 years or something, you can look it up. But one of them that really struck me and resonated with me was, you know, it was never like one single breakout moment. It always felt like one step forward, two steps back. But if you stay focused on what really matters and you find the truth in like the value that you're creating for your customers and what they really care about, you'll move in the right direction. Yeah, it's a really amazing story. And you're also hearing how your customers also are pushing you and using and see the importance of your products. I think actually one thing we'll love to talk is how do you help maybe your customers or even other people looking at Common Room to understand what Common Room is? Because I think <laughs> when you look at it from an open source company point of view, like we can see the community side. This is Slack, this is GitHub. This is, it helps us look at the signals and help us able to tell what are the high signals and things to to. And it helps the community and also helps the product. But you start to mention like there's more you're building and those more starts to bleed into potentially people that think of like CRMs or people that think of other tools in this space. Do you have a way now to describe common room to people and also help people understand like, hey, keep your CRMs or don't keep your CRMs. We were going to able to do these jobs for you. Like what is the right way to think of common room now, given your <laughs> has expanded quite a bit now? Yeah. Messaging and positioning has always been one of our challenges and opportunities in that I think what we do comes alive for people once they see our product. But because it has no legacy incumbents that are comparable, it is a challenge for founders and for, you know, for me, for our marketing team to describe it accurately. And then you get into kind of this debate that I think a lot of founders get themselves into, which is like category creation to do it or not do it, right? Do you introduce a new term that doesn't mean anything to anyone and put a bunch of dollars against making it a thing? Do you glom onto, you know, existing trends and write that way? I think for us, like this is a conversation we have every month internally, but for early stage companies, I think it's always more beneficial to latch onto existing conversations and industry trends and try to just be clear about the outcomes that you deliver and what you do versus like naming and being creative. But that's just our philosophy. And so we tell, you know, companies like, hey, we're really good at three things. We're really good at helping you understand user signals and engagement from product usage, from social engagement, and all of the intent that's locked up in those two areas. And we bring all this intelligence and data to the fingertips of your go-to-market teams. And you know, I think there certainly is a level of education cycles that need to happen 
But as we get more and more customers who are realizing outcomes, who are super excited, you know, who are activating their go-to-market teams on Common Room, we earn the right over time to become a category creator. And I think that's actually how category creation ultimately works, <laughs> right? At the end of the day, nothing else matters, but customers, are they renewing? Are they expanding? And are they getting the outcomes that, you know, you promised them they would get? Yeah, I like that kind of line of thinking around. It's kind of like something you earn as opposed to yeah. saying, I'm going to create this new category. On top of educating folks on how to use Common Room, I also imagine there's education around how to actually go about thinking of your business model and thinking about how you monetize your community. Because for, well, A, I imagine a lot of the founders you're working with are technical, maybe haven't run go to market before. But then B, one of the things that, I mean, we've seen with a lot of our open source companies is not all of your open source users should be monetized or it makes yes. sense to move over. So how much do you educate your customers on that part, which is outside of common room, but it's just the reality of the space and how little is understood about it? Yeah, there's a lot of questions here, right? So the first one is, who is your ICP, to your point? Like, who is the person that uses your open source software? Who is the person that buys your enterprise software. And we help them dial in on that through our ICP features, right? They're able to kind of say, okay, here are the cohorts of different personas that we care about. Here's our core persona. We need to be able to, you know, make sure they're getting touched by the appropriate personalized message. Here's our expansion persona. Here's an area of people that have a different title that we're really, you know, interested in growing. And so getting really deep on ICP definition is the first step. And I will promise you, and we see this across probably 90% plus of our customer base, even like very advanced companies with, you know, very well-known brands, ICP definition is certainly something that many companies don't have a clear handle on, or like they do, but it illuminates a lot of the challenges that they'll need to go solve, right? And I'm talking about, you know, commercial open source companies where the people who are using the software have nothing to do with the people that ultimately need to buy it. And we see this a lot. So after ICP definition, it's kind of the maturity of your go-to-market team, right? Do you have outbound? Do you have, you know, like inbound signups? Do you have a free trial product? Like what are those open doors that you're leveraging today to collect interest and intent and, you know, it, it really depends. Like for companies that have a scaled outbound motion, it's like, okay, you really have to be prescriptive and activate their BDR or SDR team on like the cohorts that they care about, whether it's like inbound signups by a specific persona, certain questions being asked by a certain persona, right? Target accounts engaging that look a certain way. Even like, you know, some of our companies that are more conscious of, you know, not blitzing community, they'll say things like, and this is from a data perspective, right? Only alert the AE that activity is happening in community when that account has already hit an MQL qualification. So if they've hit MQL qualification, then they're game. You can reach out to them on GitHub or wherever they are. So there's a lot of ways to kind of operationalize the data. And at the end of the day, every business is so different. So we really focus on like flexibility and configurability and kind of mapping to whatever it is in that company's life cycle. Yeah, Building go-to-market is hard. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's it's really hard. And and every stage of the company, they also are trying to figure out each step along the way as well. Oh, yeah. So, you know, you figured out one persona, you have to expand into a new persona, you've tapped out your enterprise market, you have to go down market, you have to go up market, every company is figuring out the next thing. Yeah, it's definitely tough. Also, open source projects are so different. Some are toward target users and your buyers sometimes is not. So you have to do a lot of different dances. Kind of the question is also like the complexity of building your message and your category also comes into the complexity of building your product because your product could do so many things. You have to look at so many data. You can help so many people in the company, either yourselves or DevRel or communities or everybody else. Do you have like an intuitive sense? How did you like sequence things? Like let's go after the DevRel teams initially to make sure they're successful and then layer on some other things. Well, how do you thought about, you know, when you're building the journey of Common Room, right? How do you make your customer persona to be successful? And I wonder, do you have also like intuitive sense how people are looking to adopt you? Yeah. What is the right sequence as well? So they are able to be onboarded. Yeah. I'll share my personal experience. I don't know if this is how everyone will experience it, right? It's like asking someone like, how do you write a song? And everybody's going to have like different entry points. I think for us, the product vision has never really shifted that much. So even in some of the original like boxes that I drew on a notebook, like some of those boxes, like we're only building now. So the product vision has always been consistent. And I think that, I'm not saying this is a good thing, but it just turned out that way. And I think where we sort of work backwards is we're like, okay, like we think that this concept of a platform that really shines a light into user level activity across all these new, you know, data categories are so important for modern SaaS companies. Like we want to be that, you know, integrated platform. So that means we have to go and work with the most innovative companies, right? That fit this model, the confluence of the world, the figmas of the world, the notions of the world, the Grafanas of the world, the Bercells of the world. Like we knew that those are the types of companies we wanted as customers. And then it was like, okay, like it's going to be really hard to sell into sales, right? And we're really passionate about enabling DevRel community leaders because I had done that role and I knew how hard it was to not have tools and not be able to prove out ROI. I had a really deep connection to that problem. And so, you know, it was kind of this thing where you're like, okay, strategically, that makes sense. It helps us land. It helps us get that critical data that we know is so valuable to them that they've never seen before. We think we can really provide differentiated value, not only from a data side to you know our future expansion use cases and to go to market, but also for our core persona that we're really passionate about today. So it all kind of made sense. And now we're kind of in that expansion phase, right? Where, you know, for DevRel teams that have been able to prove out their value to the organization, they're doing really well this year. Unfortunately, we've also seen a lot of community and DevRel teams being pretty embattled by the current macro. And so our philosophy hasn't changed. Like we want to enable DevRel community leaders to really tie the work they do to the goals of the business. It's important for the business. It's important for their job. And then ultimately, we want to leverage that data and harness that data to power go to market. And so it's funny, our strategy has never changed. It has taken many years to realize like strategic plans that we had from the beginning. It has taken us many years to build the features that we wanted to build from the very beginning. So it's funny, it's like 
things take longer than you might expect. But it's great when the general path has been validated or hasn't changed. So other than use Common Room, what pieces of advice would you have for open source founders that are early in their journey, haven't quite figured out their business model or go to market motion yet? Like what are some of your kind of like best tidbits or pieces of advice for those folks? I think my best advice is don't get attached to the vision. <laughs> like we started our company right before COVID, right? We got our seed round into our bank the day the market shut down. We went through COVID. We went through the height of the markets in 2020, 2021, when money was raining from the sky. We're obviously in a pretty different situation come 2023. I have learned that the macro has been so unpredictable and the macro to some extent affects everything. It affects the goals that companies have. It affects the goals that leaders have. It affects the urgency of delivering outcomes for various functions. It's been a key lesson for me that the most important thing is to always ask yourself, is the problem that you're solving for a top three problem for a you know core audience that has budget? If not, you will need to figure it out or find a path to get there. Market conditions will change, job functions will evolve, and like what's important today is not important tomorrow. So it's like, I don't know, you have to like shift with what's changing and find the new path because everything changes like all the time. I had this advisor of mine tell me once that building a startup is like surfing. Some days there's no waves and you're like am I alone out here? <laughs> and some days like the waves are crashing in. You're like, wow, like I'm really onto something like, and you're just trying to stay afloat. And then the next day the weather has changed completely and there's no waves again. Right. So it's always a shifting game. And I think like getting up every day ready to like ride and not be like too attached to what you think is happening is super important. And so I think one last question for you, you know, since I'm met you during the time you were starting a company. You were a VC before, you know, I remember you talking about wanting to start a new company out of Amazon. And obviously what you described back then to what you do today is already quite different, actually. What was your biggest learnings yourself as a first-time founder? Because you saw a lot of founders back then when you were an investor. Now you've living the dream or living <laughs> uh-huh. the journey. I'm not sure what the dream is. Um, what, <laughs> living the what, journey. <laughs> what, what surprised you? right? The most. And what did you feel like was the hardest for you to really learn? So I always heard as an early stage investors, like bet on the founder or bet on the market, not the idea. And I think that's so true, right? As you pointed out, our idea has evolved and has shifted and has changed because we're following like the signals and we're following our learnings. And we have so many more learnings than we had back then. If I had you know, stuck to the same idea, like we wouldn't be where we are today. I think that we want to figure it out. And I think that we chose a problem space that has really great, I'll say, tailwinds, (laughs) right? Like in 20 years, every single software company's go-to-market motion will have to look more almost consumer-like because users are going to be like the gold standard of how you grow. And we believe that. And so you know, it's like, hey, like we're building for this problem space. We're building for these modern B2B SaaS companies. That's our problem space. And we're everything in between the specifics of what it'll be. We have, uh, you know, 
conviction, but loosely held hypotheses. And we're going to go and validate them every day. Awesome. Well, this was a fantastic episode that I think anybody building in the open source landscape can benefit from. So thank you so much, Linda. This was great. Thank you for having me.